We're in the uh, middle of a series on relationships. Kind of a strange topic for Christmas. Usually you focus on the nativity or Galatians 4 with the fullness of time or just something out of the birth stories. But we felt we'd try something a little bit different this year at our church, and that is because Christmas tends to be such a high relational time for all of us. Uh, Let's focus on what the Bible says about making our relationships the most godly and the best that they can be. And uh, I'll let you know, where we're going to today is just about to the mountaintop. We're going to deal with one of the most difficult issues when it comes to relationships, that of conflict. And look at what the Bible says to us. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray right now. Father God, I uh, thank you for the worship that has come before us right now. Uh, to sing some very familiar Christmas carols that hopefully the words did not escape us as they point us to your son, Jesus. And Lord, we believe here at your church that Jesus truly is the centerpiece of history. He's our salvation. He's our hope. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And Lord, we know that when we tackle this topic of relationships, we, we won't get anywhere unless Christ is at the center of our lives. And so God, I pray that uh, with that mindset of placing Christ in the center of our lives, that you would help us now understand rightly what you've said in your word about how our relationships can become all that you want them to be. And Lord, as we tackle this idea of conflict today, uh, Lord, may we understand your word rightly and apply it diligently in our lives. Thank you for this season, God. Thank you for this joy that this season brings, the hope. We pray that that joy and hope through Jesus would be true and, and real in our hearts. Even now, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, one thing that we all do know is that anybody who ever decides to enter into a a human relationship is going to experience conflict. Give me a head nod that you found that out, that if you enter into any human relationship, you're going to experience conflict. Or, or you guys know me, I tend to like equations. I'm very linear in the way that I think. So give me a click here, guys. It, it might look something like this. If you have an imperfect person and you add an imperfect person, you're going to have conflict. Amen? An imperfect person plus an imperfect person is going to equal conflict. It, it's just going to happen. I love the story of the married couple who had a typical quarrel and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. Have you ever done that? Uh, Only this time it lasted for a full week, one week of mute arguing. And toward the end of the week, the husband realized that he needed his wife's help. He had to get up for a business trip the following morning to Chicago at 5 a.m. And historically, she was always the one who would wake him up because he was notorious of sleeping through his alarms. And yet, not wanting to be the one to break the silence, he decided to leave her a note. And so he wrote on a piece of paper before bed, please wake me up at 5 a.m. The next morning, he woke up to discover that his wife was already out of bed, and it was 9 a.m. And furious at having missed the flight, he was about to go find his wife and demand an answer when he noticed that piece of paper that he had written to her, and below it was written, it's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) Imperfect person plus imperfect person equals conflict, right? I mean, we've all been there. All of us who have dared to draw close to another person could tell myriads of stories of conflict, maybe even this week, that we have had just due to rubbing shoulders with another fallen person. And yet here's the catch, and that is that as much as this is true, that conflict is going to happen, what is also true is that we need other people, right? We need other people, but we need those close to us because we know that without them, somehow we are incomplete. 
I like how Ben Patterson, a chaplain and author at Westmont College in California, says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, people are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to keep warm, but we prick each other if we get too close. And he's right. He's right. Uh, John Ortberg picks up on this exact same theme in his book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. That's the title of his book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And in this book, he actually picks up on this theme that, uh, that, that Patterson tells us about here, and he calls it the dance of the porcupines. He calls it the ability to somehow get close enough in intimacy without getting wounded in the process. And sure enough, scientists have found that porcupines actually do a little dance in the process of mating. I've never seen it. But they write about the fact that porcupines have to maneuver themselves and, and do a sort of a dance to get close enough without getting mortally wounded. And the point is, is that most of us are not much different than porcupines in our close relationship. And so here's the main point that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And that is how do we as fallen human beings with lots of prickly quills ourselves dance with others around us in order to get close? How do we dance, not around, but in and through our conflicts so that we might truly have the kind of relationships that go deep and bring meaning to our lives? How do we deal with the prickliness of each other in such a way that we can work through it and not just ignore it. Three things I want to suggest to you today. It's three steps to dealing with conflict that come right from the Bible and provide a wonderful framework for drawing and staying close in and through the conflict that almost all of us experience with those that we love the most. And before I give you the first one, please notice that, I recall, uh, that I'm calling these steps to dealing with conflict. I almost called them steps to resolving conflict. But I have to be honest with you. I'm not sure that all conflict can be resolved. Let's just be realistic about it. But I do think that all conflict can be dealt with in a God-honoring way. And as we go along this morning, you're going to see what I mean by that. Some of the things I'm going to suggest to you are going to be the kind of things that will help you resolve conflict. We're certainly going to look at that. But at the end of the day, conflict cannot always be resolved, but it can be dealt with in such a way that relationships can be salvaged. You'll see what I mean by that as we go along this morning. So here's the first thing we need to do when we have conflict, and that is that if you can, let it go. If you can, let it go. Now, some of you are not expecting me to say this, but i got to tell you, folks, this first principle here is hands down, without a doubt, the unsung hero in dealing head-on with conflict. Having thwarted billions of potential relational rifts over the years, way before they even started. How? Well, listen, because when an initial hurtful act or unkind word, or misunderstood interaction first took place, the offended party did something that the Bible talks about that made it so that conflict stopped dead in its tracks. They let it go by forgiving the other person and shaking off the hurt way before it threatened the relationship. And though this might sound so simple and might seem so simple, it's very, very powerful. Listen to what Jesus said while he was on this earth. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, now get this, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
And then interesting, he later on it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, something very similar. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Here it is again. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You know, it's interesting. In both of these uh, teachings of Jesus, he tells us to forgive or, or to let it go without any mention of the other person repenting or he or she saying they're sorry or even about making the other person aware that they hurt us or anything like that. He says, just forgive and let it go. Do you see that there? No mention at all. And you can look at the context as well of each of these passages. No mention at all about the other person uh, going to the other person and stating your case. But he simply says, if you can, just let it go. And please don't hear me wrong. There will certainly be times that we are, do need to go and state our case to other people and try to deal with the conflict. And Jesus is going to have a lot to say about this as well. It's just that if I'm reading the Bible right, the first step that Jesus gives us here is to consider that maybe you can let the thing go that hurt you without having to enter into the tunnel of chaos with the other person first. And that's why I say, if possible, if you can, because I believe we do have a choice here, let it go. And by so doing, you will deal with the conflict head-on, early on, and put it all to rest. In my last church, as you can imagine, I, I had conflicts at times with people. I, I've had conflict already here in this church. And I'll never forget one time in my last church when I was down front after the uh, service, which I still do here. I hang out with people down front. A guy came up to me and he said, you know, Jim, I just got to let you know that um, you made a ministry decision about a month ago, and I knew what he was talking about, that he said really hurt me. And, and it really kind of crushed me, and I, for the last month, have been kind of mad at you. And, uh, and he said, and I'm here to apologize to you because uh, I didn't come to you. I just had these ill feelings towards you for the last month, and, and that was wrong. And I, uh, and I said, well, I, I really appreciate you coming to me with that. I, I know what decision you're talking about, and it was a hard decision, and I knew it would be hurtful to some people, but I um, really appreciate you coming to me. And I looked at him, I said, now, do, what do we need to talk about? Do we need to, to still work this through? And I'll never forget, he looked at me, and he said, oh, no, we don't need to talk about it anymore. He, he said, I let it go. He said, I let it go already. He, he said, I'm not here to try to work it through with you because I've forgiven you, because and, and I let that one go. He said, I've forgiven you, and... Uh, <laughs> And he, said, uh, and, he, and he said, so I don't have a need to do anything except to apologize to you for not coming to you sooner. I, I thought, what a great example. And I've seen this happen so many times uh, of somebody who was able to let something go in the intervening time and by so doing avoid a lot of the conflict that just might happen. Uh, folks, the first step to dealing with conflict is to ask yourself, and do this here today if you're thinking of a conflict in your life, can I let it go? Can I just dig down deep and not make a big deal of this and move on? Can I forgive but without having to go to the other person and work through it all? And you will find that many times, especially if you're in a good place spiritually, isn't it interesting that Jesus asks us to forgive when we are praying? Don't miss that. When you're praying, so you're in a good place spiritually, that you can just let it go. And if you can, conflict resolved. Now, before we move on to the second step in dealing with conflict, I want to give you a big warning here, and it's simply this. And that is that it's very easy to deceive yourself and to convince yourself that you've let it go when you haven't. So we got to be honest about that one this morning, folks, because the reality is, is that most of us don't like conflict, right? 
you and I were having a cup of coffee and I would say, hey, do you like conflict? And you said, yes, I think you're a very sick person. So the reality is most of us don't like conflict and we don't want to deal with conflict in our lives. And so you hear this first point saying, can I let it go? And you want to convince yourself, yes, I've let it go, when really you haven't. And you need to be honest with yourselves. So let me give you kind of three uh, things that might help you understand, three markers, if you will, in your life that might help you understand whether you have let it go or not. These aren't on your notes. It's not even on the PowerPoint. But write these down if you want to. Three signs that you've truly let it go or not. Here's the first sign, that when you think of another person, your thoughts are not ones of revenge and hatred, but thoughts of love and kindness. That's the first marker that you've truly let it go. So your thoughts are going to be a good indication for you. What do you think of when you think of that person? Is it still that hurt and the anger that results from that? Or is it kind thoughts and loving thoughts and wanting to be with them? Second marker, when you see the other person, you don't shy away from them and feel like you want to avoid them, but you don't mind being with them. So your actions will be a good indicator with you. I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, I've let some, something go, and I'll say, oh, really, so how's your relationship with them right now? And what do they say? It's non-existent. I don't want to see that person. I don't want to be with that person ever again. And I sit there and go, well, I'm not really sure then that you've let it go. Duh, I think it's still with you. So how do you think about that person? What do you do when you see that person? And then the third marker is that when you hear of the other person, you are tempted, you're not tempted to gossip or speak ill of them, right? This is a big one. In your interactions with them, it's going to be a good indicator that when you hear of the other person, when you talk about that person to those around you, your language, your words are kind and good. So this is not rocket science. When you think of the other person, when you see the other person, when you hear of the other person, these are all good indicators of whether you've really let it go or not. And if you're still stuck, here's what you want to do. Ask somebody that knows you really well and that knows of the conflict like a spouse and have the guts to say to them, do you think I've really let this go or not? Because I find that spouses and kids and those that are really close to you, they know whether you've let go of it or not. You might not want to hear it, but trust me, they know. And so just wrestle with the fact of whether you've really let it go. The first step to dealing with conflict to catch it way upstream is that if you can, let it go. Just do so in a legitimate way. Now, as most of us know, however, this is certainly not how it always works, right? I mean, it'd be nice if we could always let things go, but many times we can't. And what you need to know is that God knows this, and he understands this, and so he's given us a second thing that we can do with conflict if we can't let it go. Look up here on the screen, and it's this, and that is if it, if it stays with you, or if it gets between you and the other person, go. You're to go to them as a way of dealing with the conflict. And I know that this is not what many of you want to hear. I know that. And I know, too, that many of you who have heard sermons or messages or read books on conflict knew that this one was coming. The simple and most profound thing you can do when there's conflict between you and another person is to go to them. But let me make this statement. Nobody ever said the Christian life was going to be easy. Amen? 
And if they did, they were lying to you. And so what the Bible clearly says is that if you can't let a conflict go truly and authentically, then your next step is to be a man or to be a woman, take up the banner of love and integrity, and go to the other person in order to deal with the conflict. I'm telling you folks, Jesus could not be more clear on this point. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and here it is, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then interestingly, he says something similar later on in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. The implication here meaning go and rebuke him, because you can't rebuke him without being with him. And you know what I find interesting in both of these passages here, folks? Is that in each of these teachings of Jesus, he covers both bases. He basically says that if you know someone has something against you, even if they're not coming to you, because there's still conflict, you're to go to them. And that if you have something against them, even if they are not coming to you, you're still to go to them. And so whether you have something against them or whether they have something against you, Jesus covers both bases. He says to go. The simple message being that God would much rather have us enter into the tunnel of chaos as a way of dealing with our conflict rather than allow it to fester and likely continue as relational friction at best or become an ongoing source of bitterness at worst. And I can't tell you, folks, how many times I have heard the excuse, or let's just be honest, even used it myself, that goes something like this. Well, it's no use in going to them because I know what's going to happen and I know what they're going to say. Had you ever used that excuse? I think all of us have, right? It's like so incredibly universal. I mean, when I say to somebody who's having conflict with somebody, well, what happened when you went to them? And they say, well, I, you know, I, I know what they're going to say. I sit there and think, wow, if I had a dime for every time I heard that, I'd be a rich man. There are actually two really wrong things with this excuse, if I could be so bold. Two things that are really wrong with this way of thinking. Here's the first one, and that is that this kind of thinking leaves no room for God to work, right? It leaves no room at all for God to work. I mean, think about it, folks. It's his commands we are following to go. And so you would think that he knows this, and that maybe he would even honor our actions when we follow him and maybe do something either in us or in the other person when we go. I mean, last I looked, God is still in the habit of softening hearts and working in the lives of people who take him at his word. So when we don't go, when we don't do what he says in resolving conflict, it leaves no room for God to work. And the second problem with us dismissing the command to go way before we've tried it is that it also assumes that there aren't ways that we can go to another person that maybe we haven't tried in the past. In other words, some of us think, well, I've tried this before and it didn't work. But, you know, we're all growing human beings, hopefully. We're all learning as we go along. And I have yet met very few Christians who have mastered the art of biblical confrontation. And so the reality is, is that we're assuming that we've done it perfectly in the past and there isn't a way that we can do it in the future that might just be a bit more winsome. Make no mistake, folks. If you can't let it go, 
then God says, go and seek to be reconciled. Go and seek resolve to the conflict. And so if you're at all tracking with this, the big issue becomes how do we go? How do we go in such a way that stands the best chance of another person hearing us, especially when there's already conflict that we're trying to work through? And I want to suggest to you just, just one thing, uh, just one thing that I've learned from God's Word over the years, one thing that I believe can make all the difference, and I mean all the difference, when you go to state your case in a time of relational conflict. And here's the key. Look up here on the screen. And that is you need to own your own contribution to the conflict. Wow. You need to own your own contribution to the conflict. In other words, when you go to the other person, you don't go and blast them with all the things that they did that contributed to the conflict, but you first go with an attitude, an action, that clearly and humbly owns your contribution. You confess it, you own it, you state it, you get it out, you let the other person know what you've contributed to the conflict as well, as clearly as you can. And lo and behold, you have just paved the way for you to now to share with them what they contributed as well all the things that frustrated and hurt you. But you first got to share your own part. And I'll get to this in a second, but I mean substantively share your own part. I remember years ago when I first started teaching this, I had somebody come up to me and said, you know, I, I shared my own part in a conflict and it didn't work. And I said, what did you share? And I kid you not, they said, well, I shared with the person that, that I was foolish for trusting an idiot like them with the thing that I trusted them for. And I remember thinking, well, I, I, that's not quite what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking that you were going to share like a backhanded compliment like that, you know, or something so shallow. I'm talking about dig deep and ask yourself, what have I contributed to this? I, I got to tell you, folks, this point here, that of owning your own contribution is probably the most underrated and underutilized principle of conflict resolution today. And yet, like a sleeping tiger that many people refuse to wake, this principle literally has the power to put some teeth into the tough flesh of conflict resolution. If you can learn to do this humbly and consistently, share your own stuff, it literally has the power uh, to make conflict resolution a workable thing in your life. In fact, I'll tell you this, I learned to do this 15 years ago, and conflict resolution for now, me now is a reality, not just a burden. It's a reality, it's a, something I experience, not just a burden that I have to avoid. Uh, many of you heard of Gary Smalley. I, I, I quoted him um, in the first week of this series. He's a popular Christian counselor and author who used to have some uh, connections with this church. And he wrote a book a few years ago called The DNA of Relationships. Listen to what he says uh, about this point in his book. He says to take personal responsibility means that you refuse to focus on what the other person has done. Too many of us think, if only my friend would say this, or if only my husband would do that, rather than thinking, I can't change him, but I can change how I react to him. He says, personal responsibility requires that you take a hard look at your side of the equation. I like how he says that last part. Take a hard look at your side of the equation. In other words, own your own contribution. If you think it's tough to hear from Smalley, uh, what do you hear from Jesus on this one? I, I got to tell you, Jesus pulled no punches when he 
talk to us about this point of owning our own contribution, look at how Jesus would tell this to us in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 and 42. He says, why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, don't miss what he's saying here, folks. Jesus knows that most conflicts are not 90-10. We think they are. We think that most conflicts are really about the other person because you could tell me horror stories of how you've been victimized. But the reality is is that Jesus knows that most conflicts are 60-40, that they just takes two to tango. And so he's telling us here is that if you can go into a conversation with an attitude that takes a close and hard look at your own log, then you stand the best chance of the other person listening and being willing to hear you about their own contribution, what he calls the speck to that conflict. And so even if you believe that your contribution is less than theirs, say 40% or 30%, own your own part first really and truly, and watch what happens as God enters in and does something in the heart of another person uh, that creates a humility and confessional spirit in them. And I know what some of you are thinking. I know how you think. You think like me. You're saying, well, that's good and fine, Jamie, for some people, but you don't understand. I was the victim here. I was the one sinned against. And so how could I possibly own anything in this conflict? And this is a common way that many of us think, especially when we're mired in the moment of our own relational rifts and and our our highly charged feelings. Uh, But taking a step back from it all and looking at it objectively, let me suggest three things that in almost every situation I find that most people can own. Three things that will cause you to have to look a little bit deeper because these aren't shallow things, but three logs that might be in your own eye, even if you're not the one mostly responsible. Uh, First, you can own your own initial contribution to the conflict. Your initial contribution to the conflict. In other words, there must be something that you said or did that exasperated the conflict. I got to tell you, folks, as a pastor who works day in and day out with people, I almost always find that each side did something that contributed to the conflict. So if I come home this week, say I have a really stressful week, and, and, and I find out that Kim made a purchase for Christmas on her credit card, and that it was an exorbitant purchase, too much money that we want to spend at Christmas, and I just sort of blow up at her and get all mad, and we enter into the tunnel of chaos of conflict. And I believe that I'm right. I believe we don't have money for something like that. Things heat up, and conflict erupts. And now listen, folks, even if I still believe that she was objectively wrong to do that, there's lots of things that I can own on this one. I can own that I had a stressful week, a bad day, and that my mood played into my response. I can own that the Christmas holidays are tense times financially for everybody and that I'm more sensitive during this time than other times. I can own that maybe I didn't communicate clearly what we expect to do in Christmas this year, and so she wasn't completely clear on that. In other words, folks, without too much imagination, I, as a fallen human being, and you can tell I've been there, can own plenty of stuff in most conflicts. And so my challenge to you is to get humble 
honestly ask God or even others who know you, what have you done to contribute, even the 20, 30, 40% to the conflict? Own it first. See what that does for you. And, and, and the second thing you can own is this, and this one's kind of key too, and that is that you can own that maybe your personal buttons got pushed in the conflict. This one's big. You see, I find that most conflicts happen not over insignificant things, but most deep conflicts happen because something got pushed in us that was very sensitive and very meaningful, or what we might label your personal buttons. Uh, most conflicts happen because someone says or does something to hurt or offend, and yet most likely it was something that was more of a touchy, sensitive area in you. And, and though what the other person said or did was wrong, that sensitive area, that button, is still your button. Fascinating. When I was leaving London, Ontario, uh, my first senior pastor church years ago, um, I was in the process of, of doing some counseling for a couple. And uh, they assured me they were just having a general marital breakdown uh, due to escalating fighting, lots of verbal abuse, um, uh, just over lots of things in their lives, uh, mainly intimacy and trying to draw close. And, and it didn't take a real solid pastoral counselor, which I've confessed to you guys I'm not, to, to, to realize with them that there were some issues going on there that were kind of obvious there that had to do with their, their individual buttons. In other words, the guy would come home at the end of the day, and he'd be tired and, and kind of grouchy, as many guys were, and he'd want some space. And the gal had been home all day with the kids, and she was kind of fed up with kids and wanted some normal human interaction. And so she would move close to him at the end of the day. He would move further away. And the closer that she got, I know this is going to be a real stretch for some of you, the closer that she got, the more he would move further away. And so I was like, well, you know, this is like marriage 101. Like, what's the problem? You know, and, and, and the reality is, is that I realized that they both had buttons going on there that were getting pushed like crazy. I mean, his button was that when he felt crowded and, and hedged in like that, he ran. Her button was that when she felt him running and abandoning her, it, it felt like an abandonment to her, and so she ran after him. And when I help point out that both of them had these buttons in them that were getting pushed and that maybe they need to own their own buttons. He needs to be a man and own the fact that he's feeling hedged in right now and like a scared animal and wants to run and that she's feeling all these abandonment things and wants to chase after him, that maybe they can start to own them individually, honor them, and begin the healing process as they try to come together and talk about them. Folks, this happens in almost every scenario in life. Buttons get pushed in you, whether it's a button of fear or sensitivity, hurt or anger. Own that button and use I language in the process. I felt this. I've responded this way. I did this. Own your response to the conflict. And lastly, and this one you can't weasel out of, is that most of us can own a sinful response to the conflict almost surely. This one is huge because in most conflicts, even if one is not the primary offender, I find that most people initially responded to being hurt with thoughts, feelings, and actions that are not all that Christ-like. And though that might not be the centerpiece of the conflict, you can own this, and I'm telling you, it, it takes the edge off. I don't know if you caught it earlier, but when I talk about my friend, you know, who came up to me after the worship service, and one of the first things he owned was his response to the conflict that we had or to how I hurt him. And he owned that that resp response was not right but sinful, and he was seeking my apology. I got to tell you, you'd have to be stone cold hard 
to not have a humble response to his humility. I mean, I was moved by the fact that he was owning his sinful response to it, even though that wasn't the heart of the conflict. It did something in me. You see, folks, here's the simple logic to all of this. Whether you own, or when you own your own contribution to the conflict, whether it's 20, 30, or 40 percent, it truly sets a tone, now don't miss this, of humility and non-defensiveness that very much diffuses the other person's defensiveness and more often than not paves the way for them to be more open to hearing the other concerns you have as well. In fact, I'll tell you, there are times when I've gone to the other person I'm having conflict with and with a humble attitude own my own contribution first and I have found that they have volunteered their contribution without me even having to say anything at all. I mean, think about that. I didn't even have to, to confront them on it. Just my modeling of humility and confession opened the way. Not always, but sometimes this happens. And even when this doesn't happen, I find it a lot easier when I share my uh, contribution for them to own their stuff as well. This is so biblical, folks. Own your own contribution first. Identify your log, and it stands the best chance for them to hear you. I want to share with you a very raw but true-to-life story of how this can work that happened to me about 15 years ago at this time of the year. About 15 years ago, I was in my very, very first pastorate in Detroit, Michigan. A very, very exciting pastorate. We were all young in the ministry. We were transitioning a very, very 100-year-old traditional Baptist church to be more progressive in nature. We'd already gotten over many humps and we're now well on our way to becoming what one author calls a prevailing church in the community that we were in. Lots of young families were coming. The church was growing. We were adding more staff almost yearly. And I had started out as the associate pastor of discipleship in this church. And just four years later, they were changing my job into now two positions. I'd worked my way out of a job in a sense. And so instead of just running all of the uh, adult ministries, I would now be running small groups, and we were hiring an adult education guy. And they'd asked me to ride point on this hire. So I had spent about six months doing all the grunt work for hiring this position. I put the job description together, I set up ads, I received resumes, I interviewed potential candidates, I narrowed the list, I set up visits. We finally settled on one guy, a missionary, that was coming off the field from Hong Kong, and uh, we brought him in for an extensive week of interviews with all of the elders and the key staff and lay leaders. And at the end of this huge week of interviewing and all that, we had a big elder meeting to decide whether or not we were going to hire the man or not. Now, our structure was very similar to the structure of Scottsdale Bible Church, and that is that we have lay elders who uh, the staff report to, or the senior pastor reports to, and uh, then the staff function more as ministry managers. And so that's the structure that we had back then. And Kevin, our senior pastor, had asked me to do a write-up on what all the elders thought and what all the staff thought, so I, I did all of that. And uh, I had a pre-meeting with Kevin and the chairman of the board and uh, myself. And during this pre-meeting, I gave them all of the write-ups and all of that stuff. And as we headed out of my office toward the senior pastor's office where the big meeting was going to happen, Kevin, the senior pastor, went in first. And Glenn, who was chairman of the board at that time, looked at me as we were right walking through the door. And he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I I'm going to go in and join the meeting. And, and he looked at me and said, I, I don't want you to be in this meeting, Jamie. He said, I appreciate all the work you've done up to this point, but he said, you know, this is an elder meeting. 
You're not technically an elder in this church, and this is our decision to make, and we've gotten all the information from you right now, and so you're dismissed. And I was totally blown away by that because I had been the guy for six months pouring into all of this. I sat in almost all the elder meetings that our church had up to that point. And so as you can imagine, I was totally uh, flabbergasted. And, and I did something that in hindsight probably wasn't the best thing to do, but I didn't even know what else to do. I looked around Glenn to Kevin, who was now walking halfway through his office. And I was looking to Kevin because I was going to say, Kevin, help. And Glenn caught what I was doing right away there, and he said to me, he said, don't look to Kevin. This isn't his decision. This is my decision. You're not invited to this meeting. And he shut the door in my face. Now, folks, i got to ask you, how do you think I felt at that moment? Do you think that at Christmas time, which is that time of year, that I felt joyful and happy and full of hope? Or do you think I felt angry and frustrated? i got to tell you, I don't think I've ever been that angry in pastoral ministry. The good news is, over the last two years, this church has never made me that angry. I, I, I've never been that angry in ministry. I only lived three minutes from the uh, drive from that church, and yet it took me two hours to get home. It took me two hours because I drove around Detroit for two hours just fuming mad. I felt disrespected. I felt hurt. I couldn't believe that after four years of giving my life to this church and six months of pouring into this position that I would be excluded from even being in on the discussion, even though I didn't have a vote of this. And I felt massively disrespected at that time. The Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I did that night. I went to bed that night, and I was just fuming mad, and I woke up even more mad. Now, I know enough that I'm to go. But I didn't want to go to Glenn. I went to Kevin. Because this was partly a professional thing going on here. And so I went to Kevin. He was one of my boss and a very, very good friend. And I told him what had happened. And I said, I can't believe that Glenn would do that to me. Uh, Kevin smiled a little, bit, a little bit. And he said, you do know what college Glenn graduated from, don't you? And I said, yeah, West Point. And he said, you know that he tends to be very militaristic in the way that he functions. And he tends to be very decisive and curt and all of that. We all know that about Glenn. I think that's just what happened to you. I said, yeah, but, but that really... I said, Kevin, I, I don't even know if I want to work here anymore. I said, that's how angry I am about this. He said, well, then you do need to go to him. You do need to go. If you can't let this go, you need to go and you need to work this out. And then he said this to me. He said, but I promise you, Jamie, that if you go in the mindset that you have right now, nobody's going to win. I promise you he won't hear you. I promise you that you won't be satisfied. You probably will end up leaving the church, and, and nobody's going to win in all of this. He, he said, because you've got some things to own here as well. Now, in that moment, I said something that many of you would say, and that's that, like what, right? I'm like, what do I got to own? I said, I'm a stinking victim here. I, I said, I didn't do anything, Kevin. I said, I, and I was so hot. I, said, I didn't do anything. I said, I was just walking into the meeting. And he, I mean, I was so hot, as you can tell. I still am a little bit. And, um, <laughs> and Kevin looked at me, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, because he nailed me. He said, Jamie, I'm so glad that you've shared your life with me over the last four years, because he said, you know, one of your buttons is that when authority figures get in your face, it reminds you a lot of your dad, and he said, and you really react strongly to that. You and I have talked about that. He, he said, you know, you grew up with a very forceful father, and so when authority gets in your face, you're like a scared animal, and you lash out. And he said, that's what you're doing right now. He said, I'm not saying what Glenn did was right. He said, but you know that you're reacting so strongly to this, and that's your issue, not his issue. He said, you've got to deal with that before you go to him, because if you go in and blast him, 
we're all going to lose. I waited about two days before I went to see Glenn. Sometimes it is a good thing to wait, not to gossip, not to harbor ill feelings, but just allow Christ to do something in us. And I'm glad I waited a couple days. I met Glenn at a restaurant, and uh, we had a very interesting talk. I, I shared with him my case. I shared it in a, in, in, in with the emotion that I felt, and that he hurt me, and that his decision and all that. I even shared that I got some issues with authority at times, and so I know some of my buttons were pushed, and, and, and that I know that's my issue. But I said, nevertheless, I said, what you did and how you did it to me was deeply hurtful to me. I'll never forget his response. He, he's a very organized guy. So, Jamie, I want to share with you three things right now. He said, first thing I want to share with you is that I'm not going to apologize for what I did. He said, I don't think what I did was wrong, and I stand by that decision today. I, that was not a good thing to hear. He said, the second thing I want to share with you is he said, I also want to own, however, that the way that I did it, I can see hurt you deeply, and that that was wrong. He said, I know from my wife Linda and my kids telling me that I can be that way, that I can be very militaristic, and I can be curt, and I can hurt people in that, and surely I did that that day. And he said, and I was wrong, and I seek your forgiveness for that. And he said, and thirdly, I want you to know that I respect you greatly as a pastor, and I value you. And he said, and it would just kill me if you were to leave our church over this. He said, because whatever I did that day, what I didn't mean to do is communicate to you any disrespect or the value that you have to this organization. He said, because though we might have to agree to disagree about whether or not you should have been in that meeting, he said, I love and respect you. I walked away from that meeting saying, I think I'm going to stay in this church. I walked away thinking, I wish he had agreed with me that what he did was wrong. Because to this day, as some of you can tell, I think he was a bonehead on that decision. <laughs> but, but, the knitting of our hearts coming together was powerful. Let, let's go back to my three things I told you earlier. When I see Glenn, I hug him and I love him. And I've seen him since I left that church. When I hear of him, I think nice thoughts about him. Because I do. I love and respect a lot of what he did. And uh, when I talk about him, though I talk honestly... I know I can talk respectfully about him. I was able to let it go. Why? Not because the conflict was completely resolved or the issue resolved, but because of the way that we handled it. When you go, own your own contribution. And I'm telling you, it works, and it will set the tone for how your discussion goes. Now, we have just two minutes left, really one minute left. I, I told Corey before we started today, I knew I had a lot to talk to you guys about, and I told him, I said, if you don't take all your time, I will. And I did. And, uh, and, and so just give me a couple minutes here, guys, and let me just share with you one last thought that will wrap all of this up because it's really important. And, and that is that with what we've talked about so far, that of either letting it go or go, we know that even with all of that, I, I'm, I'm realistic, that sometimes resolve will still not be found. In other words, even if you go and state your case humbly and honestly, though it stands a good chance, there are still times you won't find resolve. And so here's what the Bible shares as one last thought. You ready for this? And this wraps it all up. And that is that in the end, if you still can't find resolve, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. Uh, folks, listen. When you think about it, at the end of the day, once you have tried to let it go, or once you have even gone and stated your case... You only have two options left if conflict still can't be resolved. You can either hate the person until heaven, and trust me, in heaven you'll like them, or you can agree to disagree. I'm telling you, there's only two options left. I've seen it happen way too many times. It's happening right now in this church. And that is that if you can't find resolve after you've tried letting go, after you've tried going to them, 
you're either going to hate the person to heaven or you're going to agree to disagree with them. And this is eminently biblical. I don't have time to read the passages for you, but write them down. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 40. Many of you know the passage. They're on a missionary trip. Paul and John Mark and Barnabas, and John Mark is a wimp and can't handle it earlier on in the book, and so um, Paul says, I don't want to take John Mark with me anymore. Barnabas says, I think we should take him, and it says that Paul and Barnabas had conflict over the situation. A sharp disagreement happened to the point that they separated from each other as far as doing missionary activity. They just said, we don't want to be with each other anymore over this. And so they were unable to resolve the conflict. I'm sure they tried to let it go. I'm sure they talked about it and went to each other. Conflict could not be resolved. And yet fascinations of fascinations, we get two glimpses of what might have happened later on in the Bible. Write these passages down if you're writing all this down. Colossians 4 verse 10, uh, Paul the Apostle says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, also greets you. Interestingly, Paul's mentioning Mark this guy that he didn't want on the mission trip that he had a disagreement with Barnabas over. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 11, uh, Paul says, Luke alone was, is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. And I get this, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. And, and so we find Paul there even saying, I, I now see that Mark is useful. I, I wonder, though, I don't have any biblical evidence for this. If during that intervening time, when Paul and Barnabas had this sharp dispute and separated from each other, if they didn't just have to agree to disagree. I, I just wonder, because Paul wrote so much about unity. He wrote so much about keeping the body of Christ together in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, all that. I, I just wonder if they didn't have to agree to disagree in order to keep the fellowship and the unity going. I, I think that's pretty real life. There are people in my life right now whom I've had conflict with, and I have the choice. I can either shun them and literally not want to be with them until heaven, or I can agree to disagree. I can take the high road and be a mature Christian and just say, you know what, I'm not sure we're going to see eye to eye on this, but I need to be in fellowship with you. I need to love you. This is not worth breaking fellowship over. Nobody's denied the resurrection. Nobody's denied inerrancy. I mean, the reality is we need to agree to disagree. It's the mature road. So how do you handle conflict? You let it go if you can. You go to the other person if you can't let it go. And you own your own stuff and allow them to own their stuff and try to be reasonable. Uh, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. You try to be reasonable. And then if you can't do that, you have to dig deep. You have to ask God, can I be a mature follower of Jesus and agree to disagree? Can I do that? Father, thank you for uh, your word today. Thank you that as we knit together varying passages, uh, it does knit together into a mosaic that paints us a picture of how dealing with conflict can look like. And as we started here this morning, Lord, we all owned together that conflict may not always be resolved. That's kind of the note we're ending on, but it can be dealt with. And it can be dealt with in such a way that honors you and loves you and certainly loves your creation, the other person that we're having conflict with. So, Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are plenty of people here today that could tell a story or two of conflict that they've had or even having right now in their lives. And, Lord, we want to put a godly cap on that. And so I pray, Father, that uh, we would be the type of men and women that can let it go if we can. If we can't, that we'd have the courage to go. 
And Lord, if after going we still can't find resolve, that we'd agree to disagree and choose love rather than hate for the remainder of our lives. Thank you that you call us to take the high road. Thank you that you call us to take a road that, though not easy, brings us joy and peace and purpose. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas. We'll see you next week.